Father, thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, which will give us eyes to see what we need to see this morning. Help our ears to be ready to hear. We're thankful to sing to you. And now we ask for you to speak to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We get a new series today. If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we will be. As you're turning there, uh, already I noticed yesterday in watching a little bit of sports that uh, the promo for the new Star Wars movie is ramping up. And uh, true confession, I'm, I'm not a Star Wars junkie at all. But I did think of a parallel between what this passage that we're going to look at today, what it does for the next several weeks of understanding, and kind of what the, the beginnings of each of the Star Wars episode, how, how they prepare us. So the beginning of each of the episodes of Star Wars begins with, right, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then there is this crawl of text that goes across the screen. And what that text does is it, it kind of sets the stage for a story, kind of lets you know what's going on in this galaxy that's far, far away. I've noticed often scripture does that. Often scripture will give us a glimpse into some things and, and prepare us for the story that's going to be told. I think first Kings 16 does that. A, a character or an era of history in the Bible is being in, introduced. So just if you're new to the Bible, First Kings is, that, is a book that gives us some historical records about some of the kings of Israel, kind of the, some, of, some of the first ones in their nation. So much of the story takes place in Palestine around probably 900, 950 BC. So it's ancient. What is interesting to me is as you read through, as you read through 1 Kings, it kind of goes rapid fire through this king, then this king, then this king, then that king, then this king. And then for several chapters, it slows down. And I think the writer of Kings is telling us it's worth us slowing down and paying attention to why why one particular king has multiple chapters when some only have a verse or two. He lived and he died. And then there was the next one. But it slows down in this era. It slows, this, slows down to tell us the story of King Ahab and the prophet that he interacted with, Elijah. And so I want us to take the next several weeks and look at Elijah and his life. If you have your Bibles there, 1 Kings chapter 16. And I hope you'll keep them open today as, as we're, we'll, we'll be looking into Scripture uh, a good bit. Verse 29. Let, let me begin reading there. 1 Kings 16, 29. In, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, 
And he went and served Baal. And he worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is a, a pole symbolizing an idol. Look at verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, he of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. I think the chapter break's unfortunate here, so let's keep reading one more verse into the next chapter. Now Elijah, chapter 17, verse 1, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I think what's helpful is to kind of place ourselves in that period of time, the nation of Israel, and, and look for overlaps between their time and our time what's going on in their world, and and maybe there's some identifiable things that are going on in our world as well. So Israel, in this particular time, is having a time of success and stability. Lots of things are going well in the nation of Israel. It's no small thing that there's stability, because they're coming off probably about 60 years before this, the nation of Israel has had a, a, a huge civil war. And it's divided the country north and south. But, but unlike the Civil War in the U.S., there was no reunification. There was no reconstruction trying to kind of build back the nation. The tribes in the north and the tribes in the south divided permanently. And there wasn't a reunification here. Because of that, each of the, each, the, the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom, they, they had trouble maintaining stability, especially in the north seems like there was a carousel of kings. They would, like one would become king and then he would get assassinated and another guy would become king and then a military coup would take him down and then there was another king and he would get assassinated. And I mean, it would just go on and on. As a matter of fact, before Ahab, three out of the four previous kings only, only reigned for less than five years. So you can imagine the turnover and the instability when you're, when you're trying to get anything accomplished. But did you notice it says in verse 29, Ahab reigned how many years? 22 years. So he reigns for a while. It says even that his father was able to build a, a new capital, not down in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. And you, you don't build a capital unless you have some measure of peace and prosperity to build it. So this is a time of stability and success. Things are looking up. Like they're even making some trade agreements. It says Ahab married someone that a name at least we're familiar with, Jezebel. But it's interesting. It makes clear, yeah, she was the daughter of Ethbaal and they're of the Sidonians. Marriage in, in those days often, especially in royalty, was done to kind of confirm political alliances, to solidify this country and this country. They're going to come together in marriage so that they won't attack each other. And particularly, this was a good agreement, a good trade agreement for both nations Good ports, good resources, combine that, and maybe they can stand against anybody who would come against them. So Ahab takes his wife. The economy's doing well. Probably the GDP is doing well. 
All the indicators are looking good. And what you do when things are going well as a nation, as a country, as an economy, is you don't mess it up. Just let it keep going well. The thought would be, let's keep the peace. Let's not have war. Let the stock market rise. That's what matters. I have to wonder, did, it, did the people of Israel even welcome the stability and some of the success? even though there's lots of things that are going on that are contrary to what God desires. You see, Israel was having time of success and stability, but it's also a time in the nation of Israel where they're pretty much determining they're going to do things they want to do. So it's a period of self-determination, which I don't mean as a compliment. It's more like they're rebelling, they're deserting God, because when when God is in the picture, he calls the shots. We don't tell him what we're going to do. We listen to him in his words, but not them, not during this time. They were determining what they were going to do. Do do you have the Bible open? Look at verse 30. I mean, look at all the ways the writer of Kings goes to make sure we we know they're saying, God, we don't need you. We don't need you. It says in verse 30, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Verse 31, it was just like a small thing to follow in the, the idol worship of Jeroboam, which was kind of bowing down to a, a statue. No, he escalates that by bringing in a, a, another god called Baal and worshiping. Kind of even in the capital city of Samaria that his dad had just kind of created and fortified says, let's bring the temple of Baal to Samaria. Let's have a temple here. Not of Yahweh, not of the God of our fathers, but of Baal. It says in verse 33, makes an Asherah pole as well. And then it says in verse 33, he does more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So his dad held the distinct honor of being the worst king ever in the sight of God until Ahab came. So he doesn't get to hold the crown for long. Ahab becomes the worst ever. And then there's this other little note, and it's just kind of a random note dropped in in verse 34. But there's this rebuilding project that happens in Jericho. But I think it's just to give us a picture of what's going on in that time, that that everybody's just doing what they want to do, regardless of what, what God says. So God has made it clear to his people, don't ever build on Jericho again. That site is done. But not in Ahab's time. No, we'll, we think it's a strategic place. We'll build a city there, even at the cost of the builders, firstborn and youngest. Do you hear it clearly? This is a people that are going to do things their own way. This is different. This is different than the time of David. Different than the first days of even Solomon's reign. I think back in David's time. God gave his law, and David would say things like, I delight in your law. Now nobody's delighting in God's law. God had set David up as his king, his anointed, a man after his heart. God had given his covenant, and people felt assured in the steadfast love of the Lord that never changes. And God had prophets. I mean, God gave words that, like, even Nathan the prophet confronts the king. It's a series where God, it's a season where God is, is having his will. God is present in his house. And you can even read earlier in 1 Kings, I mean, the, the temple of the Lord 
is filled with the glory of the Lord. But all of that is different by the time you come to 1 Kings 17. All of that, all of that seemed unnecessary at this point. They would do things their own way. Who needs Jerusalem? We have Samaria. Who needs the temple of Yahweh, of the Lord, of Jehovah? We have the temple of Baal. Who needs the royal family of David? We'll make whatever king we want to make. The God of David and Samuel and Joshua and Moses seemed seemed dead or at best irrelevant to their lives. And maybe, maybe just maybe, we don't know, but maybe they still put, maybe they still put God's name on their money. And, and maybe they still referred to him in a pledge of allegiance. And maybe they still like invoked his name in a prayer or a patriotic song occasionally. But those were only tokens. It was a different day. The nation as a whole had moved on to other things. They think they can do God on their own terms. It's just, it's, it's helpful for us to take a step back and like, what does it look like when we think, no, God, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to do my relationship with you on my own terms. One of the first things to go when you make that determination is that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what, what goes quickly is, yeah, he's not the only God. Yeah, I mean, there are many paths. Isn't it arrogant to say, you know, the truth, the way, the life? So quick to go if you're going to do things your own way. Kind of self-determined religion is, yeah, there's, there's not, Jesus is exclusive, not so much. Multiple gods. Jeroboam, sure. Baal, sure. Asherah, and throw in a little Yahweh too. Why not? We can all coexist. Another thing that moves pretty quickly is much morality becomes old-fashioned and then even viewed almost as harmful. So God speaks and God designs. God designs things in the, in the arena of social justice. But often when we say, no, I'm going to do religion on my own terms, you know who pays often for that? It's the weak and vulnerable of society. It's the unborn, the babies, the handicapped. No, no one looks out for them because everybody's looking out for themselves. And, and often morality in the area of sexuality changes pretty immediately. Most anything goes. Don't say anything about it. It's all okay. You just do what you want to do. No questions asked. And even the religious leaders, get them on board. Let them sanction and bless Whatever. Nothing wrong, more reason to be tolerant. This is, this is what it looks like when we do God on our own terms. And, and another thing that it looks like when we do God on our terms is we've severed a relationship of the heart. So, so don't get me wrong. I mean, you can still have religious formalities. You can, you know, like bring God up at wedding or a funeral or birth of children. You can attend a religious gathering at a holiday, but that's a cheap, cheap substitute when the God who wants our heart and wants a relationship of love and faithfulness. The more I read this portion of 1 Kings, the more I believe it's speaking to us here in Newark in 2017. And the only person that seems to be unwelcome in that kind of environment 
is the one who wants to bring back an understanding of the lawmaking, mercy-keeping, faithfulness. Pointing, pointing people back to the God of Scripture, the God who created everything. Like that person becomes, like make him go away. If he's going to bring back like the mercy showing God and the covenant keeping and the law making, like we don't want to hear from him. Shut her up. We don't want to, we don't want to hear from that. But then that guy is the exact guy who shows up in this context in First Kings. So, so we read about it in 17.1. Elijah comes, Elijah the Tishbite. What's interesting about Elijah is he shows up pretty much without any introduction. We don't even know who his, we don't know who his father is. We don't know how he's called. We don't know the circumstances, even where he met Ahab. We're just told, yeah, in all this wickedness where people are doing more to provoke God than ever before, yeah, in the middle of that, Elijah says to Ahab, how did he get access to the king? We don't know. We're not told. He just shows up. We're going to zero in on this life of Elijah over the next several weeks because he's a very, very, very important person in the Bible. He comes up again and again. But even as we begin to think about him, I want to make sure we're not... I, I want to correct a, a misimpression that we could have of Elijah, that he's some superhuman, when actually Elijah is human. There's a verse in James. It's actually for where I got the, the title to this series. And this is taken from the New Living Translation. But it says, Elijah in verse 17 of James 5 was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell. He was as human as we are. So you're going to have the temptation. I have the temptation of reading about Elijah going, this is like a, a superhuman. This is a super religious person. We could never reach that level. And what James says is, he was, an, he was an amazing prayer, but he was human just like you and I. He had fears just like we have. He had doubts, he had struggles, he had worries. He had high days, he had low days, just like us. He was human as we are. Elijah will seem even like he stands alone, but we're also told there, there's others who are standing with him, even if they're not in the forefront. Elijah had this thing on his heart. Actually, a couple things that I think put a bullseye on his back. And I, I, I want us to just have a kind of overview of, of his life, kind of prepare us for the next few weeks. It seemed like what mattered to Elijah is this. Elijah was always ready to ask this question. What does God have to say? So this is, I mean, we've looked at the time period of Israel. In comes this person, Elijah. And what's so unique about Elijah is that it seemed, he seems always ready to ask this question, even when it's an unpopular thing to ask, even when they want him to go away. The, the question remains like for Elijah, well, what does God have to say? What does God have to say? Let's listen to that. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's do that. Whatever God says. As a matter of fact, if you're one that likes to like, make notes in your Bible, or, or kind of underline repeated themes in your Bible. It's a very helpful thing. You begin to underline the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord said, the word of the Lord in 1 Kings 17 and 18 and 19 and 21. You're going to see that come up again and again. See, this is what Elijah knew. He knew what Isaiah wrote. That the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God 
last forever. He, he had the same appreciation for what God says that, that Jesus told us to have when he said, whoever hears these words and obeys them, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who builds a house upon a rock. He has the same appreciation of what God says as the writer of Hebrews, who says that God's word is, is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce like soul and spirit, even to get to the motivations of the heart. This is what God's word does. And so Elijah's ready to say, have we, have we heard what God has to say about this? Elijah knows what the psalmist says, that God's word is like a, a lamp to guide our, our path. What Jesus said, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Like Peter said we ought to be newborn babies hungering, thirsting for the word that will help us grow. So quick question, quick question. Elijah always asked the, asked the question, what does God have to say? Does that same question matter to you? Does it matter to me? Do, do you ask, like, well, what does God have to say about this? Do you do that very much? Maybe you're new to the faith. This is a question you should learn to ask regularly. What does God have to say about this? Maybe you've been in the Christian faith for a long time. You'll never outgrow this question. What does God have to say? Do you, do you, do you read God's word to hear what he has to say? Say, well, I'm not much of a reader. Do you listen to it? Plenty of audio Bibles. Plenty of apps. Do you listen to it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate on it? Do you, do you take it in? Does what God has to say, does it come up in any discussion throughout the week? Does it come up in any discussion with your friends? When you're giving counsel, have you stopped to think, okay, what, what does God have to say about this? When you're receiving counsel and someone says, I think it'd just be a good idea, or I've always felt that, that may be valuable information, but do you ever stop and go, well, I wonder what God thinks about it. I wonder what God says about it. Does, it, does God's word win in your life? Does it win in your home? Does it win with your decisions? Does it win with your attitude? Does it affect how you think and what you think and what you say and, and how you spend your money? Would, would you ever change your mind because God said something? And it was even different than what you thought. But God has said it, and there you read it, and it's true. Would you change your actions because of what God says? Would you say that your life is in submission to God's word? For Elijah, all this was crucial. He would bring that question to bear regularly. So he would regularly ask the question, even if it became uncomfortable, what does God say about this? He would also ask another question, and that is, who is loyal in their hearts to God? So who are the ones that are loyal in their heart to God? What he will show to the people of Israel and what he'll show to us is, when it comes to this matter of allegiance to God, yeah, you can't split your loyalties. As if, ah, Baal today, Asherah, Yahweh, and then we'll kind of repeat. I think of this in a, in a very small, minor way compared to our allegiance to God, but I think of my allegiance to some sports teams. So I'm watching a game, and if my team's playing, 
especially when they're playing the rival. Like, I, I don't want to hear, oh, I could cheer for either one of these teams. No, no, no. No, no, you can't cheer for either one. You got to pick one, especially if it's a big rival. Now, there will be a host of games. I'll be sitting and watching on a, a Sunday afternoon and our youngest daughter, Shiloh, will come up and say, Dad, who are we cheering for here? Who, which team do we like? The blue team or the orange team? You know, on that, mm, I don't know. They seem to make a good play. I kind of like him. Ah, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. There's a host of those games that doesn't really matter. But there's some where, oh, no, no, you got to pick a side. It only doesn't matter if I just don't care much about what's going on. But when it comes, when it comes to the Lord... There is no divided allegiance that we can just comfortably keep going. I'll do things my way and sometimes God's way. Elijah isn't perfect. Don't hear me say that he's perfect. He's not. But he isn't wavering between two opinions. He seeks to love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not having other gods before God. He's seeking first the kingdom of God. Whether he eats or drinks or whatever he does, he's doing it for the glory of God. This is allegiance. He's not perfect, but his loyalty should challenge ours. What does God have to say who is loyal in their heart to God? These should press on us. And we can read a lot about Ahab and we'll find out more about him and we can read a lot about Elijah, but I have a fear that sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I miss the main character of the story because the main character of the, of the whole Bible is not Elijah or Ahab, it's God. So the question I ought to be asking, even in a story like this is, okay, I see what, I see what Ahab's up to, I see what Elijah's doing, but where is God in this story? What is God up to? And surprisingly, even in this story, this is, what I, this is what I find God up to. I find God desiring to show steadfast love and mercy. Because I'm watching as a nation is just going headlong over a cliff with Ahab. And God raises up Elijah to confront God's people. That's, that's mercy rather than letting them plunge into darkness. God shows mercy. God shows mercy in a couple ways. God shows mercy by revealing how weak and how worthless our idols really are. God shows mercy by revealing how weak and how worthless our idols really are. Where do I find this in this story? Did you notice in 1 Kings 17, everybody's, everybody's worshiping Baal. Israel has sold themselves out to Baal. If you do any sort of research, you find that Baal was known as the storm god, the god who controlled the wind, the god who controlled the rain and the precipitation, the god who created storms, the god who could end storms. So it, it's interesting to me exactly what Elijah says. So Elijah comes into the presence 
of Ahab. And he says this, as the Lord, the, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years. It's not happening. So immediately, everything seems to be rolling along. Baal is having people worship him. Even the king and the queen are leading out in worship. And then all of a sudden, the brakes stop. And Baal is shown as, you're not that powerful. Because you're not going to be able to make it even rain. God has a way of showing how weak Baal is. And over and over again, God is going to use Elijah to show how weak. God is merciful to us when he shows us. Hear this. God, God's merciful to us when he shows us just how weak and worthless are the things that we sell our souls for. So we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves this, right? If I could just get that promotion, if I could just get the job, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just be loved, if I could just get into that particular school, if I could just have a little bit more money, if I could just have this dream come true, if I could just get a break, if I could just get this transfer that I wanted, if I could just have a child, if I could just have a grandchild, if I could just get rid of this boss, if I could get rid of this coworker or this employee that is giving me so much grief, if I could just have a friend, if I could just have a particular friend, all these things, I promise you, all those things would make a difference in your life. But they're never meant to be the ultimate thing in your life. And the minute you think, oh, I just need all of that, is the minute it begins to break down. And even when you get it, it's like, that isn't what I was looking for. I still need more. None of that, none of that could satisfy the portion of you that was made to rest in God alone. The sooner we learn that, the better. And it's God's mercy that he's going to show the nation of Israel Baal cannot save. And neither can the things that we make out of idols, make idols of. This week, you just watch the headlines. Our culture certainly makes a, an idol of money and all it, can, all it can do. But then you never have enough. And you can lose it all overnight. Or you can have it all and still be miserable. Uh, if anything, our, our culture makes an idol of sex and says, you can have all the sex you want and never feel bad about it. But then there's this dark side to it. I want to see how weak and worthless it is. There's this dark side when you recognize all the sexual assault, all the sexual violence, all the predators. But wait a minute. You just do whatever you want to. No, there's a bill that comes due. It'll, it'll never satisfy. Our culture makes an idol of power. So someone gets the highest level of power, pinnacle of success. And that doesn't deliver the results. You can have all the fame and approval and comfort and pleasure and security. I, I was watching, watching football yesterday and across the, the ticker, this is, it's not even news anymore. Is yet another athlete that got caught on drugs or, or some sort of alcohol-related and he's been kicked off the team. This is a professional athlete that had given their whole career, whole life to being successful and in a moment, in, in maybe one poor decision, maybe it's a hundred poor decisions, but, but all that's gone. How fleeting it was. One poor decision, one tweet, one offhanded remark, one person comes forward, one conversation is caught. And it, and it all unravels. It's all undone. 
God is merciful. God is kind in telling us and reminding us that nothing and no one besides him is ultimate. Nothing else could hold that weight. And it's better, it's better that you get confronted with that when you're 15 or you're 25 or you're 35 or you're 45 than to build this whole house of cards and have it all come down because it was always weak and it was always worthless. Better that we turn from all that and turn to God. God shows mercy confronting the idols, but God shows mercy in confronting us with our need of him. The people in in Israel that day would get desperate when it quit raining for a while. They would get desperate. And they'll need God. Maybe more, more importantly, they'll recognize they do need God. What they have going on, kind of their little thing that was going well, it didn't work anymore. And Elijah will pray, and he'll show others how they too can depend on God. God shows us mercy by confronting us with our need of him. And so my question for you is, do you know that you need him? Do you really know it? Do you really know that you need him? So I don't, I don't have a rant toward like people out there that don't come to church. Now, I actually have a word for us here. Do we, do we recognize that we need him? Actually, the core of the good news of Jesus is that we need him. And whether you realize it or not, you need him. We all do. God's the king over all creation. He's made everything absolutely perfect, but we, we have messed it up. We all go our own way. We reject him. And because of that, we, we, we can't save ourselves. And so God begins to write a redemption story. First to the people of Israel, that if they would turn from their sin and trust in him, he would forgive. But then it's, it's too small of a thing for just one nation. It's for the world. And so God sends his son to the world. That whoever would believe in him would be forgiven. He came to live a life of love and mercy. He showed us mercy like we've never seen. He was sinless and yet he died as a criminal. Trumped up charges as a lawbreaker. He died on that cross for our sin. We need him. But then he rose from the dead in authority and power, and now he offers life to all who will believe in him and accept him as their king. We need him. So he calls us to turn from everything else. Yes, our sin, and yes, all the other good things we want to say, well, I'm righteous because I do this, I do this, I do this, and to trust in him. We need him because only Jesus can make us right with God. And if we place our faith in him, we will be rescued. And God will start a new work in our lives that will make us more and more like Jesus. We need him. And it's a mercy of God when your heart recognizes, oh, I really need him. I really need him. Yeah, you can learn a lot from Ahab. You can learn a lot from Elijah. But both those are going to point you to, to Jesus tell you that that's who you need that's who you need desperately i mentioned earlier one of the priorities of elijah was like what does god say what does god have to say so i guess that's that's the way i'd like to end today my question for you is like what is god saying what does god have to say to you today i believe he's still speaking i think he can meet you even where you are what does he have to say to you and when he says something, are, are you ready to respond? Are you ready to obey?
Can I ask you to bow your head? In a moment, we'll sing. But for right now, can, can you think about that question? What does God have to say to me? Lord, I confess sometimes it doesn't feel like mercy when I get confronted with my sin. But I thank you that you don't let me keep wandering away. Thank you for the work you do in our hearts to draw us back to the truth. Thank you for reminding us of, oh yeah, it really is important to ask what God has to say. Thank you for meeting with us today. Lord, may just ask that when you speak, we'd say, yes, Lord, whatever you want. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.